Well, good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. We're so glad you've come to join with us this morning and uh, also want to say a welcome to those of you who are watching online. Thank you for, for tuning in and we pray that you'll get the benefit of what we're doing here today as we come to worship the Lord. Um, especially if you're visiting with us, let me welcome you. My name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here and we're delighted you've come uh, to spend this hour with us. And there is uh, tea and coffee available after the service, so please don't feel you need to run off. If you're happy to stay with us and share a cup of tea with us, we would love to get to know you better. Why is it, why is it good to come to church? Why do, why, why do we do this? Why is this a good idea for us to come together like this? I suppose there's lots of ways you might answer that question. I'm, I'm going to offer you one reason it's good to come to church because we so easily forget what's important. We so easily forget what's important. We need to be reminded of what really matters. Because I don't know about you, I very easily lose perspective on what matters most and what matters least. In fact, if you were to look at the news on any given day this week, you would have a regular reminder that we easily forget what's important. It doesn't matter that there are bombs dropping in some countries, that there is famine in others. All that matters is, that whether, is, is whether or not a tennis player is going to get to play in the Australian Open. Even in our own country, it doesn't matter that hundreds of thousands of people's Lives representing hundreds of thousands of families' lives have been marooned. No, what matters is how many people had an alcoholic beverage in the garden of Downing Street in the last couple of years. We forget what's important. And though we might have opinion on, opinions on those sorts of things, we've surely forgotten what's important. If only the same energy was expended in speaking about what's important. Psalm 105 opens with these words. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. This is what we were made to do. And we get busy with so many things. We face pressure from all sides, so many demands on our time and energy, but we come here today at 11 o'clock to be reminded of this. We were made to worship. We were made to know. We were made to delight in God. And we come together like this to help each other Turn our gaze again to him. Our reading is from Acts 8. Acts 8, 
26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way and met, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel at all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Good morning. Uh, it's great to, to be with you again this morning and again to, to look at God's word together. Um, I, I wonder how many of you amongst all of the other unimportant bits of news noticed uh, a news article that published the top 10 earners from YouTube in 2021. Um, top of the list is somebody who calls himself Mr. Beast, and he earned a whopping 39 million pounds last year, garnering over 10 billion views for his crowd-pulling content online. Uh, he clearly has a strategy that works to pull a crowd. Um, whatever he does, looking at his videos, he repeats it, and he repeats it, and it pulls in this crowd. Over 10 billion views is, is nothing to laugh at. Um, but what we, what we see from this is, you know, if you have a strategy to pull in a crowd, you don't change it. You don't muck about with the formula. You just stick with what's working. And if you have a crowd, 
You don't go chasing that one person that's not in your crowd. You just stick with your crowd. Um, these things seem pretty intuitive to us, and maybe for YouTube that's okay. Um, but in our story in Acts today, we see that God's mission moves in unusual ways. He seems to change a winning strategy, and he chases after that one person that is miles away from the crowd. Today, as we continue our series in, in this book of Acts, uh, we continue to follow the movements of Philip, known as the evangelist. And last week, we saw him and the church scattered to Samaria, and he was preaching the word and seeing incredible fruit. People were being saved. Momentum was being built in this region between Samaria and Jerusalem. Crowds were coming to Jesus through the preaching of Philip and others. But then it seems that God changes the strategy, his winning strategy, and he leaves the crowds behind. God's mission moves. God is the one who moves it. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why does God do this here? As we look at God's mission moving here, we see, I think, three things come clearly through this passage. We see God's missionary heart, we see God's missionary method, and we see God's missionary purpose. So number one, the, the number one thing that I think we see revealed here in the way that God's mission moves is God's heart is filled with compassion for individuals. God's heart is filled with compassion for individuals. God, in his sovereignty, he tells Philip to, to leave the crowds in Samaria, and he tells him to go to a desert road, miles away from anywhere. We see that in verse 26 of our passage. And the instruction on the surface seems really totally counterintuitive. Why change this winning strategy? Things were going well in Samaria. Well, we, we should not read this here that that God doesn't care about the crowds in Samaria, but rather that God cares deeply about each and every individual, wherever they happen to be, whoever they happen to be. God had a person for Philip to meet that we're going to discover later in this story, someone who needed to meet him. And God made sure that his mission moved in order to get these two men to meet here we see God's compassion for the individual, the single lone person, the lost, the outsider, the one away from the crowd. This, I think, for me, it has an echo of the, the lost sheep, that story that we see in Luke 15 of this shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and he discovers one is missing. What does he do? He leaves the 99 behind safely, and he goes out in search of that one lost sheep. And I think that's something that we see here in this passage. In the way that God moves Philip, we see the deep compassion that God has for individuals. God's missionary heart is moved by compassion. And we see this compassion in how God moves Philip down to this dusty road. And we also see God's missionary heart reflected in the actions of Philip. First, we see the immediacy of Philip's response. When told by the angel in verse 26 to go, the very next verse tells us he got up. And he, and he went, he gets up and goes. There appears to be absolutely no hesitation. His heart moved compassion, by compassion, does not wait around. And, and this movement of Philip, reflecting the movement of God, continues in the narrative. When we see in verse 29 that, that Philip is prompted by the Holy Spirit, 
to go and speak to the Ethiopian, what do we see? Again, in verse 30, Philip, he doesn't hang around. He responds immediately and runs to get alongside. The running of Philip shows his understanding of the urgency of the mission and shows us his stunning obedience to get alongside whomever God has put in his path. But I think there's also something else that we should notice here. Just consider for a second the significance of the act of running in this culture, in these days. The tunics worn by men would have meant they would have had to hitch them up to expose their bare legs and run. It was an embarrassing thing to do, uh, an awkward thing, and even a shameful thing to do. I wonder if, like me, this reminds you of another story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. When the the son had taken everything from his father, went away and, and ruined his life, when he came back sheepishly, what do we see the father doing? When he was a, a long way off, he runs. He bears the shame of his son and he runs to embrace him and welcome him home. Well, we have something similar in this scene, I think. As Philip runs undignified, exposing himself to the shame for the sake of pursuing this one individual that God has put in his path. I think of what holds me back so often in in getting alongside people in my day-to-day life. And I'm sad to say that that so often it's just a fear of of being awkward and embarrassed uh, because my evangelism isn't slick enough, I don't have polished answers, or I'm just afraid of, of sticking out and being awkward. But here we see that Philip just shows none of these fears. He embraces the awkward, embarrassing run to get alongside somebody, this Ethiopian. I can learn a lot from Philip, and and I'm sure many of us can. In this simple yet profound act of Philip running, we see the missionary heart of God. God pursues people. God runs after individuals. He does it here in the story of the Ethiopian, and he does it with us. If you're a Christian here today, you know that you are only here because God came running after you. While you were far from him, while you were his enemy even, God came running after you in the person of Jesus. We didn't go chasing after him. For me, it was while I was a young man filled with thoughts of my own importance, running after my own ambitions, running in the direction of hell, that God came running after me and revealed himself to me. If you're not a Christian here, you may not know it yet, but but God runs after you. The fact that you are even listening to this sermon, the fact that you have heard God's words read in his Bible today, the fact that you have Christians around about you in your life is evidence of the fact that God runs after you. And I wonder how that makes you feel. God runs to you. He runs to me in our helpless and lost state like the the shepherd going out after his one lost sheep, like the prodigal's dad coming to run and embrace him. He doesn't just sit and wait for us to wander home. He goes out in pursuit. And we see something more of the missionary heart of God in this passage when we pause to consider just who it is he's running after. Look at the, the man that Philip runs after in this passage. 
Verse 27 tells us that he is an Ethiopian man, a foreigner to the people of God, and he is a eunuch. This foreigner and eunuch has taken an epic pilgrimage to go and worship God, all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. We see he is, he's well-trusted by the queen of Ethiopia. He is in charge of all her treasure. And this position is likely granted to him on account of the fact that he is a eunuch, a castrated man, and thus less risk to the queen. In this sense, he is privileged. He is clearly quite rich. He has a status. He has a chariot. But being a eunuch also comes with some severe downsides. He would never have a family, and so would be very vulnerable. And even more significant, in a Jewish context, being a eunuch meant that this man was unclean, an outsider, excluded. If you were to flick to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, you'd see that no eunuch shall enter the assembly of God. So although being a eunuch may allow him to climb the ranks of the Ethiopian royal house, it excludes him from the royal court that he really longs for. He wants to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, but his way is barred. He was only allowed so close and then no further. His way was blocked because of who he was. This is tragic. It's not something that he can do anything about. It's not a status that he himself can reverse. He can never become whole and clean and pure in the eyes of the Jewish law and gain access to the temple to be with God. We could imagine him traveling all this way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem and asking, what prevents me from coming in? And the priest laughing and saying, look at yourself, you're a eunuch, go home, go back to where you came. He went all this way only to find his way to God blocked because of something he cannot change about himself. We, before we know Christ, are in so many ways like this Ethiopian. We could try to get close to God through going to church, prayer, reading, doing charity, being nice to people, but our way to God is blocked because there is something about us that we cannot change by ourselves. Something blocks our way to God, and this thing is sin. The thing stopping us getting close to God is a sinful heart. We can try to cover it up with good behavior, a bit of religion and charity, but deep down, we know it is our hearts that prevent us from being who we want to be and who we need to be in order to get close to God. We need to fundamentally change. We need to be changed. Or we're doomed to forever trying and failing to get close to God by our own efforts. But the, the story of the Ethiopian, it doesn't end there. And it opens the hope that our story of trying to get close to God can end with hope and real joy. Because on his way home, God moves in pursuit of the Ethiopian. The God he couldn't get close to comes running after him. And in fact, God has been running after this eunuch for much longer than you might imagine. We, we mentioned Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, which tells us that the eunuch is excluded from the assembly of God. But if we were to look at Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5, we, we read that God has a plan 
Let me just read those verses for you. Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. These are incredible words for this eunuch. But how would this promise come true? How and when would it be fulfilled? I wonder if these questions were in the mind of this Ethiopian man as Philip came running alongside him that day. As we will see soon, it is in being pointed to Jesus that the eunuch is transformed and he finds the answer to the questions he's looking for. God ran to this man, unable to get close to God because of who he was, to utterly transform him and bring him near. It's here that we see God's missionary heart is moved with compassion for him. The outsider, the marginalized, the vulnerable. God moves to those who cannot get close to him. But how does he do it? That's the point that I want to take us to next. When we've seen God's missionary heart, now let's look at God's missionary method. As we turn to this missionary method in this passage, it's worth noting that there are some aspects of this story that are extraordinary, not the usual methods that God uses in his mission. For example, God speaking directly to Philip through an angel is not our ordinary, everyday experience, and nor was it Philip's for that matter. Also, at the end of this story, we see that Philip is seemingly transported from one place to another. Again, this is not usually how God operates. It does show us, though, that he is able to do it, and in this instance, for some reason, he chooses to operate in this way. But the mission is, is not contingent on these things. The thing that runs as a constant throughout this narrative is the way that God uses his people and his word. God brings, uh, God's people bring God's word to the world. We see that uh, in Philip's life, long before the angel came and spoke to him, Philip was preaching the gospel wherever he was. When the angel spoke to him, he continued to preach the gospel where the angel sent him. And after the angel had left him in Azotus, we see him doing the very same thing. He's bringing God's word to the world. He continues to preach. The ordinary methods that God uses throughout this story are his people and his word. This means that we, we don't have to wait around for some special message from God before we get on with the ordinary work of the gospel, the ordinary work of God's mission. We have been given all that we need to get on with it. God's missionary methods are his people and his word. So let's just first consider the fact that God uses people to complete his mission. Yes, this part of his missionary method, it really couldn't be simpler to understand in one sense. God uses people to reach other people. But actually, when we think about it, it's astounding. God uses people. The almighty God, the creator of the universe, holy and perfect, this God who, who needs nothing, chooses to use weak, 
fallible, limited people like us to tell people about himself. This is astonishing, especially as we see the power of God in verse 29 and, and verse, verse 26 and verse 39 of this passage. God could speak directly to people. He doesn't need us to speak. God can move people in miraculous ways. He doesn't need us to get alongside others, but he chooses to. This is not to be a burden to us, but a joy. There is really no greater joy than being able to share in bringing someone to Jesus, in being able to in, introduce someone to Jesus who has never met him before. This is one of the greatest things that I have ever had the joy of being able to do in my life. And if, if you've had that experience yourself, you know the joy of that. This is something that God invites us to, to share in this joy. And he also uses people to reach people because when we come to God as our Savior, when he saves us, he saves us not just to himself, wonderful and glorious as that is, he saves us to be his people, a community. By using Philip in this story, God was bringing the Ethiopian not only to himself as God, but to his new community, the church, a people from every nation and tribe and language. God uses people because life with God is life among his people. There is something also wonderfully everyday about how God uses people. He uses people who have families and stories and checkered pasts, and he involves them fully in his mission to bring people who have stories and checkered pasts into his family. And he uses our everyday interactions, the paths that we walk along, the people that we meet, the movements of our lives that so often feel insignificant and incidental so that we meet the people that God has chosen for us to meet. We see God do this very directly in the story of, the, of, of Philip and the Ethiopian. He makes their paths cross. But we know that God is in the business of doing this every day with all of us. He causes our paths to cross for a purpose. He puts people in our lives that run alongside us and bring us to God. And he puts people in our paths so that we might run alongside them and point them to God. I wonder if you have, have experienced these divinely ordained coincidences in your life. A moment where God puts someone in your path just at the moment when you needed a word of encouragement or someone to help you in some way or to point you to the goodness of God. Have you ever considered that every interaction you have today and this week and next week is a divinely ordained meeting. God is in control. Consider who God may be using you to run alongside this week. When we begin to see life in this way, all of our interactions with people abound with meaning and purpose because one of God's missionary methods is his people. One of the things that God uses is you. The second thing I want to highlight about God's normal missionary methods from this story is this. God uses his word. God uses his word, his divinely inspired written word. This is how God chooses to reveal himself to us, God's people bringing God's word into the world. 
And we see this in a very striking way in this text. The Ethiopian eunuch riding home, perhaps dejected and perplexed, is seeking after God in his word. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. Uh, We don't know if it was just a a little scrap or if he had a big chunk of it or, or perhaps the whole scroll, although that's unlikely. But we do know that at very least he had the section of Isaiah that we refer to as Isaiah 53. He's reading it aloud, and and Philip, running alongside him, hears him. And in verse 30, we see Philip doing something that we should probably do an awful lot more of. He asks a question, a very good question. He, He doesn't make any assumptions that just because this Ethiopian was reading the Bible that he knew what he was reading, that he knew God, that he understood it. So Philip with great boldness, led by the Spirit, asked the eunuch if he understands what he's reading. And the Ethiopian responds in verse 31 with something that should make all of us sit up. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? Or I think the version that Fred said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Here we see the intersection of how God uses his people and his word. His people without his word are powerless and have nothing that matters to say. His word without his spirit-filled people is impenetrable. God uses his word and he uses his people as guides to his word. There's a great mystery in this statement. It's a profound mystery that God chooses his people and a greater mystery that God chooses us to open his words to others. His word, which is powerful and mighty and caused the world to come into being. And yet, God chooses to use us to guide people to the truth of it by the power of his spirit. God uses his people and he charges us to bring his word to people. We see here that the Ethiopian, he doesn't just need a loudspeaker. He needs a guide. So when we, as God's people, bring God's word It's not just a matter of throwing a verse at someone and and running away. We need to take time to listen to people, to understand where they are coming from. We can't just dump the gospel and run. We need to be guides to the gospel. And part of that means starting at where people are. I'm sure you've seen these maps around tourist cities that, that give directions to find various landmarks. And they'll all have an X because that's where you stand on the map. And without that X, it's virtually impossible to find your way to any of these monuments. We need to know the starting point, and that's what Philip does here. He finds out the starting point for this eunuch, and he points him from that point to Jesus. So in verse 34, a deep conversation opens up between Philip and the eunuch as they discuss Isaiah 53. Having invited him to chat with him, he now, the the Ethiopian, asks Philip the most pertinent question, one that cuts to the heart of everything. He asks, who? Who is this speaking about? These words in Isaiah 53, who was Isaiah speaking about, himself or somebody else? I can't overemphasize how good and important a question this is. We can spend our lives reading and studying the Bible, gleaning lots of historical information much wisdom and insight into how life works. We can develop rules for a good life from it, but if we never ask this question of the Bible, who is it all about? Then our learning will be in vain. 
like the the Pharisees in John chapter 5, when Jesus says to them, you know, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. They knew their Bibles. They didn't know Jesus. By asking the who question, the Ethiopian avoids the trap that the Pharisees had fallen into. He asks the question of Philip's, uh, and starting from that very passage in Isaiah 53, he points him to Jesus and tells him about the good news of the gospel. This is the key that unlocks everything for the eunuch. Philip tells him that Jesus is the lamb that went silently to the slaughter. Jesus is the one who bore his griefs and sorrows. Jesus was pierced for his sin in order to bring him to God. If his, his section of Isaiah had included Isaiah 56, those verses that we read not long ago, I, I have no doubt that Philip would tell the eunuch that the promise for him to be included among the people of God and to be given an everlasting name comes true in Jesus. Jesus is the key. The eunuch with no hope for a family and excluded from the people of God is brought near is adopted into the family of God because of Jesus, Jesus who took his shame, Jesus who chose to be cast out so that he could be brought near. Philip, God's man, brings God's word to this Ethiopian and shows us that God uses his people to bring his word to the world. Nothing has changed. This is still God's missionary method. So we've looked at his God's missionary heart and his missionary method. Now let's come to the climax of this story. God's missionary purpose. To what end has he done all this? In the story of the eunuch, we see something wonderful that demonstrates what God's purpose is here. It's quite simple. He has come to save. And his salvation is both individual and global. We see both of these things in the saving of this Ethiopian man. He is the the first non-Israelite convert in the history of the church. He is the, the fulfillment of the promise to bring foreigners into the church. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's purpose to build a church from every nation, tribe, and language. Through the saving of the Ethiopian, God's mission moves global. And it, it may be no coincidence that around 300 years after this event, when this Ethiopian man met Jesus on the road south to Ethiopia, Ethiopia became one of the the first regions in the world to adopt Christianity as its official religion. Perhaps this this man had something to do with that. We we don't know for sure. But this story, it it started with God's heart for the individual. So, So let's draw this sermon to a close by looking at the purpose of God's mission towards this one man. And in this one man, his missionary purpose for for all men, his purpose was to bring the Ethiopian to the point of responding to him in saving faith. Now, what does this look like? As, As Philip runs alongside and then sits with the Ethiopian, opening God's word and pointing him to Jesus, something remarkable happens. The Ethiopian realizes that this is not just a message for information. It is one that promises true transformation, and it demands a response. And he responds with a stunning question. What 
prevents me from being baptized. For him, from Philip's teaching, baptism, it was just synonymous with being a Christian. And this is what we see again and again in the Bible. True saving belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior is followed by being baptized as an outward expression of an inward change. The two are linked in a way that that being married is linked to rings being exchanged. My, My wedding ring doesn't make me married to Lisa, but on our wedding day, we exchanged rings to show that we were married so that the world might see that, that I am hers and she is mine. And to be very clear, baptism saves no one, but it is something that is done to, to proclaim faith in Christ. It's a symbol of saving faith already present. So the Ethiopian, having been pointed to Jesus as the one who saves, shows that he has responded in faith, accepting Jesus as Savior personally by asking this question in verse 36, what prevents me from being baptized? Or in other words, what is preventing me from being part of God's people? What is preventing me from coming to God as my own personal Savior? We could imagine him asking a similar question earlier in the story at the temple gates, couldn't we? What prevents me from getting close to God, getting into the temple? The answer then was, just look at yourself. You're not fit to get close to God. Go home. The answer now is wonderfully different. When he asks what prevents him from getting close to God, the answer is nothing. Nothing. Look at Jesus. He has made you fit. He has made you fit to come into God's presence, whole and unashamed. So the Ethiopian jumps into the water. He declares that he belongs to Jesus and Jesus belongs to him. No longer is his way to God barred. And then in the final words spoken about the Ethiopian, we see something profound about God's missionary purpose. It tells us that this man went on his way rejoicing in verse 39. Rejoicing. At the start of his journey, he went to worship, to bow down to a God that he didn't really know. He knew he was someone great, but he turned home sad, unable to get close. Now he knows not only the greatness of God in an impersonal way, but he knows the goodness of God to him personally in the person of Jesus Christ. This lies at the heart of God's missionary purpose, to take us from being people whose way to God is blocked by our own sin, from a position of outsiders who do not know God, to being people who have been brought near because of Jesus' life, his death for us, his resurrection that changes our status before him and our posture towards him. Jesus deals completely with our sins so that we can now rejoice. I wonder if this is something that you have experienced. If this is something that you would like to to know more about, if you have questions or would like prayer, for anything, I would be delighted to, to meet with you after the sermon. I'll be sitting at the front, so, so please come up and, and have a chat and um, feel free, don't be shy. I hope, I hope, though, that if you came to church this morning to worship a God who you knew to be great and powerful in an impersonal kind of way, that you might leave this place recognizing not just his greatness, but his goodness to you personally 
in the person of Jesus Christ and rejoice. I pray that you might rejoice to know that it is Jesus who removes all barriers in your path to come to God. I hope you can see in this story the missionary heart of God, that he runs after you, that you can see his, his missionary method, that he uses you. He uses his people and his word. And I hope that you have experienced personally God's missionary purpose to save the lost and bring near those who are far from him. Let me pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us of who you are and how you act in history, how you act towards us. Father, we thank you that you are not a God who is, who is far off and distant and cold, but you are a God who pursues us. You are a God who runs after us. We thank you that you have done that for us in the person of Christ who became a man, who humbled himself, who lived a perfect life that we could never live. He died a sacrificial death in our place so that our sin might be fully, completely dealt with, that all barriers between us and you can be removed because of what Jesus has done. Father, we pray that this morning we would be filled with a knowledge of the truth of your goodness to us in Jesus Christ, and you would give us hearts that rejoice. Father, we pray that you would, you would help us to meditate on these things and that you would help us to to see ourselves in this story that you have written. Help us to, to know that it is in Christ that all of your, your promises to us are, are made true. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And amen. Thank you so much for being with us today.